Hello and welcome to the relaunch of Naked Genetics, the show which seeks to find out just what is going on in our genes. I'm Will Tingle and join me as we seek to cover the latest in genetics research and see just what the front line of genetic mapping and sequencing can reveal about our world. This episode, we catch up with some of the more curious genetics news from the past month. We look at just how much Neanderthal is in you and... What he does is he eats his penis. We look at one of the most remarkable breeding strategies in the animal kingdom. Welcome back to Naked Genetics. And where better to start than with a catch-up? What has been going on in the headlines of genetics over the past month? Well, whilst we can definitely cover that, could we also take it a step further? Because it's all well and good to look at a genetic study and see that presence of gene X leads to disease Y. But in something as complex as the human body, which has over 20,000 genes, how can anyone really say with confidence that a certain gene or gene cluster is solely responsible for something as huge as a vulnerability to a disease, for example? So what are the questions that actual geneticists ask when they see the headlines? Obviously, I can't answer that. So that's why I journeyed into the centre of Cambridge, to find a couple of people that could. I'm Owen Scally. I'm a researcher in human evolutionary genetics here in the Department of Genetics in Cambridge. And my work is based on using lots of genome sequence data, complicated mathematical models and computing to try and understand what happened in the past and how we got where we are today. What is it about genetics that really excites you? Why did you choose to walk this, this path? Well, interestingly enough, I initially didn't. I was trained as a physicist. So this is a field I came into somewhat later on. It's actually not so uncommon in the field that I work in because it's quite mathematical and the training that you get in physics is relevant for it. But uh, I think it's something I've always been interested in. That's because genetics is such a fundamental part of understanding you know, what we are and what was the journey that we all went on to get here. So I think if in order to understand that, you have to understand genetics. And uh, last but not least. I'm Shivani. I'm a final year medical student at Cambridge. My interest is primarily in oncology, clinical oncology. I did my bachelor's in genetics uh, three years ago now. My interest in genetics comes from interest in science and understanding, you know, who we are, why are we more likely to get certain diseases? What can we do about that? And obviously oncology is where it all comes together and we go deeper into the genes and why do things change? What can we do to prevent it and treat it? Far be it for me to drive a wedge, but why is clinical so much better than <laughs> evolutionary? I think with clinical, it's applied. So we're living in the UK, which is obviously an aging population. And there's so many advances with genetics as well. So it's very, you can take a finding, you can apply it to human health, and you can actually see an outcome in terms of people living longer and better quality of lives. And that's sort of why... I chose medicine in the first place as opposed to pure science. Very noble. Mm. <laughs> Any thoughts? No, absolutely. I can see that it's probably what drives a lot of people's interest in genetics, actually, is is that, that desire to kind of use it to have a real, real impact on people's lives and health. And often you meet biologists who are driven by surprisingly different motives. Someone to understand how things work today in animals and other organisms and other people want to understand how did it come to be? And it's quite interesting often how those two questions are quite different and involve different ways of thinking about the same problems. I hope we're all united by an insatiable curiosity. Indeed. Well, let, let us jump straight into the news then. I think first up, 
Having just come off the back of a delightful lunch, um, we have the story that uh, a new Northwestern University medicine study has found that a person's genetic makeup plays a role in determining whether they can stick to a strict vegetarian diet. Now, Shivani, before we get into the genetics, why do you think a study into vegetarianism is so pertinent now? That's a very relevant question. I think one should always ask, what impact does this have on society, on people? There's a couple of reasons, I believe. So one is the environment. Obviously, thinking about climate change, we know that methane produced by raising cattle and beef is a large percent, I think at least 20% of greenhouse gases. There's obviously ethics. People are not happy with how cattle, other animals are being raised. There's the question of health. So red meat's been linked to colon cancer. And I think people are generally more aware about what's in their food, what percentage of saturated versus unsaturated fats. So there's probably quite a lot of factors driving towards a more vegetarian-based diet. When a study like this comes out, when it says there's a genetic disposition, when you're looking at something like that and there's, you know, X amount of genes uh, are dictating whether or not you have a predisposition towards vegetarianism is, what does that mean? (laughs) So that's a very fair question. And, And before I read these sort of articles, it's something that I asked too. So speaking directly about this is quite interesting. So the genes itself affect two main things metabolism and taste and the interplay between metabolism taste and preference towards a certain diet are genetically controlled so that's where that comes in that sounds like a lot of things to factor in when talking about genetic disposition is it a lot of genes that they've looked at that account for this total of 11 is that a lot (laughs) that doesn't sound like a lot so the thing with GUR studies is I think as we were speaking over lunch, there's a lot to do with maths and kind of saying, is this statistically significant versus is it not? And you have to be careful when drawing a conclusion when things are associated versus to 100% say this causes that. And that will probably never be the case because genes and environment, there's a lot of interplay. So we can say there is an association that has been found. Mm. So you're saying that people who have a gene that makes vegetables taste better... (laughs) Well, there are definitely genes that control metabolism. Your metabolism then controls how you taste certain things. And then that controls your preferences. So it's more of a network of very complex factors. You touched on it uh, briefly for a second there, but there's also this huge environmental thing, upbringing, what you have access to eating as well. In terms of this genetic predisposition does it have an equal weight which which, where's the ratio do you think between environmental and genetic in this instance so i'll give the example of coffee so people who metabolize coffee quicker find that the taste is better and will therefore consume more coffee that's been shown in the previous study now if that person who enjoys coffee is living in a society where there is not a lot of coffee consumption versus if you're living somewhere in South America where it's a staple part of your diet, I think that would definitely influence how often you're consuming coffee. Mm. So I hate coffee. So does that mean I can't metabolize it properly? Perhaps that could be a problem with your genes. <laughs> yes. Coming back to the whole why is this relevant? Meat alternatives are better for the planet. That's provable in terms of emissions, but aren't necessarily currently better for the person eating them. This study, therefore, is presumably useful for those seeking meat-free alternatives. I think 
that really varies. So in terms of plant-based foods, it depends on how it's processed. It depends on how much salts are added, preservatives. Plants definitely have a better unsaturated to saturated fat ratio than animal meats and red meats have. And in terms of this kind of vegetarian thing, it's actually to do with fatty acid metabolism. And the type of fatty acids, which are complex sphingolipids found in meats, have been linked with certain neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, um, autism, etc. So again, it's one thing to say this causes this, it's another to say there's an association, but there's definitely a role in terms of the types of lipids found in meats versus vegetables, and how is that prepared? Are either of you vegetarian? Not me, no, although increasingly uh, these days, thanks to my daughter being vegetarian, that's sort of had an impact on all our diets at home. There's a lot of stories like this, and we're probably going to talk about quite a few of them, and, and I think the context for all of any study like this is just how complicated the biology of any given trait is and particularly something like this, which is a behavioral trait. Uh, human beings are complicated enough just in their, you know, their physiology and their biology in that sense. But then when you add into the things that are going on in their brains that make them do one thing rather than another, um, it suddenly becomes almost impossibly compl complicated to imagine how does one study this. And traditionally in science, we approach things from the perspective of, you know, you're trying to put together a causal chain of this causes that, this causes that, and we end up with this outcome here and now we understand this phenomenon and, and you know those you might call that sort of an understanding of mechanism but it's just too complicated and so instead we do these association studies which is really just a statistical correlation but as soon as you've done that like the complexities don't go away they're all still in there so the people who you've identified as being more likely to to be vegetarian or drink coffee or whatever there's a whole bunch of factors in their culture and how that impacts their diet and the environment that they live in and all kinds of other things that you can think of. Every single one of those is potentially going to be a factor and trying to tease those things apart is very difficult. The more you read into it, it seems from an outside perspective, the sheer nebulous nature of genes, even in just one human being, means that how could you possibly tell that a certain amount can lead to a concrete evidence that you are more or less likely to be predisposed to anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are a few cases, rare cases, where we have the typical example of Mendelian diseases, where, you know, if you have this particular genetic variant, then you will have the disease. Most traits do not behave like that. It'll be a lots of tiny little effects from all over the genome. You know, one gene maybe has an effect on a protein which is involved in some kind of minor way and another one will do something else to some other protein somewhere else and after a huge complicated interaction of all these things it, there'll be some sort of five ten percent effect on the on the the trait you know that's what we're trying to deal with so most things we're trying we're teasing about these these tiny effects and trying to look at them in aggregate and maybe if you have a, a large enough number of people they start to become clear and are you a vegetarian? <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, definitely something to consider. Having said all of that, we, we must now turn to a study, which is probably going to make us all tear our hair out again. We've already been through enough pain. However, a study out of the French National Institute for Agriculture, Food and Environment has concluded that having certain Neanderthal genes can raise your sensitivity to pain. But I guess before we get into that, how on earth do you measure or quantify pain to begin with? But I'm fairly sure it involves inflicting pain on people in rooms and um, seeing when they say our, some, some equivalent. You know, that's, I think, 
the nature of it. It's one of those physiological responses that, that people have devised. I'd, I'd say the ethics are probably quite unpleasant to try and get, get through yeah. the experiment. I saw uh, the methodology of that paper is extraordinary because it involves rubbing mustard oil onto people's arms until it burns. Right. And, then, and somewhere got funded to, to do that and see where people say out. But I guess the, the question is, which if we could even put a location on it, which genes would code for pain reception? Well, I know that there's a couple of genes that people have identified. And I think the interesting thing about it, to my mind, is that different types of pain seem to have different genetic mechanisms that are involved or that have been associated with them. So um, pain due to temperature has a different physiological and potentially genetic mechanism from pain due to pinpricks on the skin or, or insults to the body that in that way. So I think that the actual details of it, in most cases, is going to involve genes that are involved with signaling because pain is, a, is, is one of these signals that goes through the body and therefore cell signaling mechanisms like channels that are there in the, in the cell membranes that let ions through. That's kind of how cells communicate with each other in the body. Those kinds of genes, are, I think, are typically what's implicated in, in these mechanisms. But again, those are the ones that we've seen so far. These are going to be complicated, probably not going to be a very simple thing. Uh, and the ones that we've seen, I think we know them because something's gone wrong and the person with some unfortunate person with this variant has a hypersensitivity to pain or equally bad and no sensitivity to pain. You know, both of those are bad conditions to have. It's interesting that you say that there's different areas for different kinds of pain, because I think there's there might be studies that say sort of people who are uh, less sensitive to pressure-based pains are more sensitive to, say, temperature-based pains. So there could be some kind of evolutionary trade-off between the, amount, the, the types of pain you would have to endure. Say your ancestors walked a lot in the cold, but didn't have to carry a lot. So maybe you don't need as much pressure pain, but they do need more temperature pain. I don't know if there's anything in that to your mind. Well, it's a good example of when you're trying to address evolutionary questions. I mean, we've been talking about how hard it is to, to come up with explanations for just how the body works today. Trying to come up with explanations for how something might have evolved is, if anything, even harder. And there is a tendency, it's actually quite easy to come up with stories sometimes, many of which are very plausible. I mean, the one you've said is quite plausible, but how on earth would one go about actually establishing that that was how it evolved? Sometimes there are signals that we can see, and particularly with ancient DNA, sometimes we can see that, yes, actually in the past, this gene was more prevalent and this one hasn't, or this variant, I should say. But by and large, we have to be pretty careful about leaping to a story about why something may have happened or whether or not there was a trade-off. It's kind of, it's, it's opening up another whole can of worms. I think that the interest for me in this particular story actually was not so much about, you know, what does it tell us about pain? I don't know if it does. But this, the, the context being the prevalence of Neanderthal alleles, Neanderthal variants in everybody's genome or nearly everyone's genome. So the, they're there in a few percent of People's genomes outside of Africa, people with African ancestry have um, have a lot fewer or, or no Neanderthal ancestry in their genome. And there's been a lot of studies in the last kind of decade or so about this. And, and this was an interesting example of, of how people are, people are very keen to find meaningful impacts of Neanderthal ancestry in us. You know, not enough just to say, well, this is what's happened in the past and this interesting event, but it also affects, it also makes us more or less likely to have some kind of condition. So there's some, some sort of deep requirement for us to be able to explain things in those terms. Exactly on point. There was a study a few months ago, maybe a year ago, that having a certain amount of Neanderthal DNA in you meant you were more uh, susceptible to COVID and long COVID. Yeah, and there's been a bunch of others, uh, a related study looking at cold adaptation um, in various people. Um, had there's been effects that have been conjectured about effects on diabetes. I mean, there is some interesting genetics behind this, some interesting evolutionary genetics about the, the what you would expect to happen when 
a population like Neanderthals who have been in a different environment and maybe in quite a small population size, what happens when their genes come into a much larger population, which is what we think happened about 50 to 100,000 years ago. And we expect actually, by and large, there to be those kind of variants to not do very well in the new population and to be responsible for uh, deleterious effects, you know, things that generally have a bad impact. Um, every now and then there might be a few good things that help you adapt to, to environments, but um, that you know, those are kind of that's the actual the expectation here, and so it's totally plausible that they are having some. You know, they're involved in maybe certain diseases and things, but again, it's quite hard to establish it with certainty. So one has to be a little bit careful about some of these things because the numbers are often quite small in some of these studies. We we set this up as a uh, explaining the news segment, but now it's uh, let's trash the news. It's all impossible to say. <laughs> that's where we're going, right? Thank you very much to Shivani Shukla and Eowyn Scally. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to Naked Genetics, the program that delves into genes and the geniuses that study them. As we were just talking about in the news roundup, Neanderthal DNA has been very prominent in the headlines for the past couple of years. This came to a crescendo when winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine, Svante Pebo, got said award for sequencing the genome of the Neanderthal. We've learned that we share around 2% of our genome with our now extinct relatives. But how did it get there? And what does that mean for us in our day-to-day lives? I asked the Francis Crick Institute's Pontus Skoglund just how long ago we diverged from our Neanderthal relatives. That's a great question. And so when people have looked at DNA uh, and tried to sort of estimate using the known rate that we get mutations when Neanderthals and humans separated or diverged, as we call it in the past, they've gotten something like half a million years ago. But I think there's really fascinating hints that there was more complex things going on. Some of it is more than hints. We know that on our mitochondrial DNA and our Y chromosomes, we have a common ancestor with Neanderthals more on the order of 400,000 years ago. Furthermore, there's some indications from people who look at fossil morphology, you know, how they look, the fossils, that makes it seem like sort of Neanderthal traits and what is to become Homo sapiens traits might be diverging much earlier as well, perhaps, you know, almost one million years ago or maybe a bit less than that. And so I think what this is hinting at might be that it was sort of a a two-step process where perhaps our ancestors initially became diverged and then there was a point of contact 300,000 years ago or something like that. And that's sort of the average of that number comes out uh, in our calculations for a half a million. Ah, so this is much less of a clean split. So some birds flew off on an island and they never saw their original counterparts ever again. This is far more of like a, a bit of a, it's a bit of interspecies breeding in the meantime. Exactly. So yeah, the equivalent would be that, you know, maybe the, the sea levels went down at some point and there was a bridge between the two islands, but then perhaps they become became isolated again. And yeah, there's really been a, a bunch of different studies looked have looked at this phenomenon, all um, publishing hints uh, that this is what's going on. So assuming then that this 2% figure of sharing Neanderthal DNA is an average, let's say, what affects the sort of exact amount from person to person or groups of people? The main difference is that Neanderthal ancestry is found in people that have recent non-African ancestry. So in the past few thousand years, ancestors that were from outside Africa. And that's really the line of evidence for that this is something that happened during this expansion in our species from living only in Africa and its vicinity to expanding into far-flung areas like Europe, 
Asia, Oceania and the Americas. People with strictly, for example, West African ancestry will have negligible levels of Neanderthal ancestry. People with only sort of recent, uh, let's say, Asian or uh, Oceanian or um, European ancestry will have about 2%. There's actually very little variation between people. Uh, some of the ancestry companies kind of report information as what your rank is <laughs> among customers. And we've touched on it before in the program, but it seems the presence of Neanderthal DNA in an individual's genome does affect their susceptibility to diseases such as, for instance, COVID. There's one theory that Neanderthals were exposed to certain illnesses before Homo sapiens and it gave them more time to build up a resistance. So, you know, presence of certain Neanderthal genes gives our immune system a bit more to play with. I was wondering if you had an opinion on that. Whether do you think that's a worthy theory or if you have one of your own? There's the COVID question and then there's sort of the general fact that, yes, since many people have up to 2% Neanderthal ancestry, that will, of course, affect, you know, the variation they have in their genomes and the mutations that they have. And those will inevitably affect biology in some way. There's a certain degree of variation within us humans and 0.1% of that type of variation on for the average trait would be explained by Neanderthal ancestry. And so, of course, it will impact biology. I think it's important when you see in the news uh, of Neanderthal variants having an effect on particular physical traits or other traits is that that's kind of the expectation. You know, they are uh, mutations among many others in our genome. They will influence them. Usually they do at a sort of smaller proportion of the trait. But it's, it's really fascinating. And in several examples, you know, it might indeed have been adaptive for various reasons. It might have been things that were adaptive in Neanderthals that were adapted later on. COVID is, of course, a fascinating example. I think uh, it could just be to chance, as far as I know, that Neanderthals had this variation that, and that it was sort of transmitted to people today. Maybe it was selected later on in, in uh, Homo sapiens. That seems to be a reasonable thing to, to ask. If we were so genetically similar to Neanderthals to the point that we could interbreed with them and they are part of our genome, why is it that we are still here and Neanderthals seemingly are not? Yeah, that's another fascinating Questions. Neanderthals mostly disappeared around 40,000 years ago. One possibility that people, uh, of course, like Svante Pabo, who's been the main researcher by far on Neanderthal DNA, awarded the Nobel Prize last year, has brought up is that it may be that they were just sort of lower in numbers and they were kind of absorbed in uh, expanding populations. And that's sort of where this 2% number comes from. But I think it's also important to remember that this kind of ebb and flow of ancestry groups that don't contribute much to later generations uh, when you uh, bring the clock forward thousands of years. That's quite common. Neanderthals disappeared 40 or so thousand years ago. The first people in Europe don't seem to have contributed uh, much to populations just a few thousand years later. And then, of course, when you get even to more recent times, the last hunter-gatherers didn't com contribute much. You know, they lived 10,000 years ago. They didn't contribute much to later farming populations. Later farming populations in turn didn't contribute much to later populations. This kind of ebb and flow, I think, is really quite common in our history. But that doesn't mean that human ancestry is uh, shallow in time. In fact, our big family tree connecting all of us goes back several hundreds of thousands of years. I do like the idea that the Neanderthals aren't gone. They're just within us, even only slightly. Yeah, absolutely. They're still around. Ponta schooling, thank you very much. And now to round off this month's edition of Naked Genetics, it's time for Quirks of Evolution, where we look at some of the most bizarre, most unexpected adaptations and behaviours to exist in the natural world. And, well, we might have peaked too soon. 
On the southwestern coast of India lies Nephilengis malabarensis, the Malabar spider. It's an orb-weaving spider. The females can grow up to three centimetres long, which is three to six times larger than the male. All pretty standard stuff for a spider. But when it comes to the act of courtship, things get very strange indeed. Rebecca Coffey is the author of Beyond Primates, Every Sperm is Sacred, and she took me through it. For the Malabar spider, oddly enough, he has two penises. They're called palps, and they dangle from either side of his face. Though the female has two receptacles or vaginas, they're actually called a pigonum or a pigana, and they are on the abdomen. So what he generally does is climb up on the web, jostle it a little so that she knows he's there, go over to her, stroke her, and then mount her from the underside. And he takes one of his palps and puts it into one epigonum and starts ejaculating. And that's where the odd stuff begins. His palp is detachable. It breaks off. So he puts it into the epigonum and then he breaks it off and leaves it in the epigonum to enjoy the sex, right? And he comes back out on the web and stands ready to defend her from any other potential mate. This is an area of evolutionary theory called sperm competition. What sperm competition is, is the male trying to guarantee that if his female has many mates, his are the sperm that get to the egg. So the male Malabar leaves his ejaculating palp inside the epigonum and comes out to defend her from other males. And then if one approaches, things get really weird. You would think that he would stick his other palp into her other epigonum, break it off, let it ejaculate, and then he would have two plugs in her two epigona, and the whole battle would be over. But no, what he does is he eats his other palp. He eats his penis. You could have given me a hundred guesses, and I wouldn't have been able to guess that that was what happened. Right, you wouldn't go there at all. So no one knows why, because no one has ever asked a male Malabar why he eats his own penis at that point. But a team of scientists from Asia and Europe built basically little boxing rings for male Malabar spiders and paired male eunuchs with fully bodied males. And they paired male partial eunuchs with fully bodied males And the name of the paper says it all. Eunuchs are better fighters. The mind boggles, but is there anything to be said that eating your own palp might give you that burst of energy needed to defeat whoever you're fighting? Certainly that's one interpretation. Another is that it just pisses you off so much that you become a monster. But after he has left one in an epigonum, and eaten the other, he has no more reproductive potential in his life. Those things aren't going to grow back. And Charles Darwin defined procreation 
as the whole point of life. It's why sex feels good, right? We just keep going out and doing it. And the result is that we send our genes into the next generation. Well, he can't do that anymore. And so his next act to me is almost as astonishing as eating his own palp. And it is that he offers himself as dinner to the female. Why? (laughs) Because he's just inseminated maybe 200 eggs. She has a huge nutritional need and he is there to satisfy it. That is absolutely amazing. And almost it's kind of a one shot deal. If nothing's growing back, then you've really got to hope that this is a successful mating attempt. That's right. And, you know, male spiders mate very rarely. They're not always eaten and they're not always threatened by another male. But you only get so many shots in life if you're a male Malabar spider. And they're willing to give it their all. And nothing but respect to them. And people thought that male praying mantis had it bad just having their head ripped off. Imagine having to rip off your own organ and then be eaten as well. And, you know, across species, there are sperm competition strategies. They can be biological, they can be physiological, and they can be behavioral. With canines like coyotes and dogs, there's a bulb at the base of the penis that inflates sticking the female onto the male for long enough for his sperm to get to know her eggs really well before another canine approaches. For humans, mate guarding, jealousy on the part of the male is possibly just a sperm competition strategy. It keeps other males away from her so that your sperm gets to her eggs. Across species, sperm competition is absolutely fascinating. Fascinating is one word for it. Thanks to Rebecca Coffey, author of Beyond Primates, Every Sperm is Sacred. That's all we have time for this edition, but there's just time to trail a very exciting feature starting in the next show of Naked Genetics. Will it sequence man versus machine? Can I outwit the cutting edge of genetic sequencing technology by finding a sample that cannot be identified? And, as well as that, how are people using such sequencing DNA to solve the mysteries of our world? All very much to look forward to. But that's all for this edition of Naked Genetics. We'll be back next month. But in the meantime, if there are any areas of genetics you'd like to hear feature on the show, do drop me a line at willt at nakedscientists.com. Thanks to Shivani, Aylwin, Pontus and Rebecca. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Will Tingle. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.